You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm speaking today about caregiver depression. And I have a panel of speakers with me today joining me from the CHOP Policy Lab. The first is Dr. Rhonda Boyd, a psychologist at the Policy Lab and Associate Director of CHOP's Child and Adolescent Mood Program. Second is Dr. Jim Guevara, a primary care attending at Carabat Center, a researcher at Policy Lab, the Senior Fellow at the Center for Public Health Initiatives, and a Senior Fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. And the third is Dr. Marcia Gertis, a Senior Psychologist at Policy Lab and Associate Director of the Neonatal Follow-Up Programs. And today we're talking about caregiver depression because children with a depressed caregiver are at risk for poor attachment due to the reduced ability of their depressed caregiver to meet their emotional and developmental needs. While the lifetime prevalence of a major depressive disorder is 16.6%, we know that mothers of young children and those with fewer economic resources are at particularly high risk. Therefore, since our young patients in disadvantaged households are particularly vulnerable and their caregivers may not meet their emotional or developmental needs, we as pediatricians need to know how to screen for and intervene in caregiver depression. So my first question for our group is what are some signs that we may see during a clinic visit that should alert us that a caregiver might be depressed? Well, as you know, Katie, this is Marcia, and I'm the senior psychologist here at the Policy Lab. Um, Parents come with their children for many well-child visits, especially in that early period of life, four times in the first year of life. And sometimes we do notice parents come in with an affect of sadness. Sometimes they seem a little distanced from their baby, or maybe can't answer questions when we ask questions about how the baby behaves or sleeps or is responding to food. And those are clear signs that a mother may be depressed or feeling worried or a little bit inactive in terms of her engagement with her child. But I think it's important to note that sometimes we just don't see those signs. And sometimes the parents who come in who look very competent, who are very talkative, actually are the ones who are feeling significant depression. And that's why using a standardized screener for identification of depression is so important. Mm -hmm. And are there some things from the chart that we might see, like frequent ER usage or school absences that might be a tip-off that there's something going on in the family? I think that's true. To, with parents of older children, where we can see a little bit more of that activity in terms of absence from school. For young infants, I think there is a slight increase in emergency room visits, but it's hard to distinguish by that alone. Mm-hmm. And we also may be seeing, this is Rhonda Boyd, we also may be seeing more behavior problems in the kids, um, both internalizing and externalizing problems in older kids. Mm-hmm. And so why are so many of our patients at particularly high risk for having caregivers who are depressed? Well, um, we know that many of our disadvantaged families that we take care of have a number of known risk factors for depression. These include uh, such things as poverty, stress, may lack support in caregiving to take care of their kids. And this is important because as uh, pediatric clinicians, we're taking care of their children, but we realize too that parents who have depression also have 
parenting difficulties that they struggle with. They can use harsh parenting techniques when they feel depressed or they can be lenient and ignore their children. And it's really for this reason that Policy Lab's intergenerational work is focused on parenting difficulties. So since we've identified that this is a problem that, that faces our patients and our patient population, how can we as pediatricians screen these adults who are the caregivers for depression in a primary care setting? Well, so Katie, I think we can screen using validated tools. Validated meaning that they've been shown in large population samples to accurately identify symptoms of depression. So these would include tools such as the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale or the Patient Health Questionnaires. There's both a two-item and a nine-item version. Um, when we do screen, we could screen by simply asking parents, caregivers these questions, or we could have them complete the screening instrument on paper or on a computer tablet. Now, other folks such as uh, Dr. Artis Olson up at Dartmouth have found that when you actually administer the, the screening instruments on paper or as opposed to asking them directly to, the, to a parent's face, that they endorse symptoms on a much higher frequency, somewhere around 23% versus 6% in her study. So mm -hmm. based on that, we at CHOP now have gone to screening using computer tablets mm -hmm. and then having that information fed back to the pediatricians. Great. That makes sense that they would be more willing to disclose those symptoms to a computer uh, screen. And Katie, if I could just add one more thing is, you know, important question is why should the pediatricians be the ones screening yes. the parents? And what we know is most parents don't go back to their OBGYN even after the birth of their family, their mm -hmm. child, mm -hmm. and may not be seeing a family doctor on a routine basis. Mm -hmm. So because we care so much about the well-being of young children, we take on that responsibility of the parents because they are coming to us, and most mm -hmm. parents will come to many, many of the well-child visits. So it's a great opportunity that would be missed if the pediatrician didn't step into that role with an adult. Mm -hmm. Great. And when should we be screening caregivers for depression? Are there certain intervals that we should be doing it? Is it at certain stages of life that we should be thinking about this? Um, according to the United States Preventive Services Task Force, um, women should be screened both during um, pregnancy and the postpartum period. That time is called the perinatal period. Um, universal screening is recommended during these times. Oftentimes in the postpartum period, it's considered at least two weeks to eight weeks postpartum mm -hmm. is ideal, but that can be expanded. There are no clear guidelines currently about how often um, women should be screened, and so people will have to kind of use their judgment in, in that case. It makes sense to definitely screen for pediatricians during the postpartum period at some point, mm -hmm. and then maybe based on family risk factors or mother's history, if there's a lot of risk factors may or things change in their life, like if there was some trauma that may occur later, they may want to be screened later in life. And you can screen at any time during um, a child's lifespan and during the parent, um, especially if we have these validated screening instruments um, that can be utilized. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned postpartum depression screening. What is the screening that we should be using for postpartum depression screening? And, and also, besides using that screening tool, how might we distinguish baby blues um, and postpartum depression? 
Baby blues occurs when um, mothers right after birth. Um, about 80% of mothers actually experience baby blues. Their mothers are highly emotional at that time and may cry easily, become overwhelmed, but that should last less than two weeks and resolve. For um, clinical depression, postpartum depression, that um, lasts a lot longer, um, it's more impairing. Mothers exhibit a lot more symptoms of depression, sadness, loss of interest, fatigue, um, appetite, and um, disturbance, a sleep disturbance. And so that becomes uh, much more severe um, and can last months to years. Um, and then there's um, what we call, um, people sometimes confuse postpartum depression with post postpartum psychosis in which um, one in a thousand women will experience. This is a more um, abrupt onset right after um, birth and women ex um, experience really extreme symptoms of depression and psychosis. Um, so many times there's a lot of attention played to um, postpartum psychosis, which people confuse with postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So I think given the, the symptoms that Rhonda was talking about, the way to help ensure that we screen is to actually institute what we call universal screening, meaning that we, we have every mom who brings their child in for a well child visit during that postpartum screen, postpartum period gets screened mm -hmm. for depression using one of those validated instruments I had talked about before, mm -hmm. such as the Edinburgh. Right. Mm -hmm. And that in CHOP, we're routinely using the Edinburgh on tablets in at most clinics? At the two-month visit. Mm -hmm. At the two-month And, you know, one other point is that um, even though there are these different types of depression, for the person who's doing the screening, it's not their responsibility to distinguish a clinical depression from a postpartum depression. As you refer the family for services, it's up to that clinician who's going to be treating the mother and have a longer chance to interview them can make that, that designation. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to add this important to set up a system for mm -hmm. um, after screening, for mm -hmm. referral, and what should happen to the parent um, because you don't want to screen without appropriate um, referral and system set in place for them. Right. So on that note, then, if we do have a parent who screens positively or if maybe it's an interval where we didn't do the screening, but we have a strong suspicion that they're depressed, what interventions can be done and, and what resources do we have in the Philadelphia area to help these parents? Well, Actually, there's some really good news here and that there are very effective treatments for depression that women can can go through. Some of these are behavioral therapies, cognitive behavior therapy, which is known as CBT, mm -hmm. is one of the most effective ones that's been used with women. And that's available through for all women through their insurance. So for women living in Philadelphia who have Medicaid, they can go through the community behavioral health system, mm -hmm. CBH. And within CBH, there have been a number of clinicians who are very specifically trained to work with women with young infants. Mm -hmm. In addition to therapy, um, there are services from, there are, is intervention through medication. Medication and behavioral treatment works best together, mm -hmm. but some women do seek medication on their own and they can get that from their OBGYN, from their family physician. Mm -hmm. And that's effective, has been found to be effective as well. Um, also, I mentioned earlier that um, caregivers who are depressed have parenting difficulties. So one of the um, interventions that we're testing in Policy Lab is can we develop and implement a parenting program for women 
who have postpartum depression. So that's in progress. Mm, great. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the study that the three of you did and sort of what were some of the barriers in that study and, and outcomes? So because of the negative impact that depression can have on both parenting and child behavior, um, as Jim mentioned, we focused on parenting. And so um, as we look through the research literature, there were parenting interventions that have been um, utilized um, in primary cares, but many of these have not been adapted um, from um, parents with depression symptoms. And so we sought to adapt a validated in, um, parenting intervention that is group-based, um, adding psychoeducation about um, depression to the intervention, and we tested it with um, caregivers with depression symptoms and who had a, um, a child between one and two years of age. Mm -hmm. um, we compared the parenting group to a waitlist control, and we um, implemented that, and we found that compared, the parenting group had improved um, parenting discipline over the course of the intervention compared to the waitlist control. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we encountered were several obstacles in regards to attendance. Attendance was fairly low for the groups, and there were a multitude of factors that impacted um, making it difficult for mothers who have depression to come into the group. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly this is a population that's having some struggles already in terms of their uh, depression, but then also we know that they're maybe coming from, like we said, the risk factors. They're coming from a lower socioeconomic status. They have young children. It's hard to get out of the house with kids. So. How are you going to overcome those challenges in future interventions? Well, I, I think there are a number of strategies that people have employed. Home visitation is certainly one strategy where, where many of these uh, parents who are, who are depressed have difficulty getting out of the house. They may not have access to mental health services within their uh, close community. They may struggle with transportation issues. So home visits can certainly help with that. Um, We've also been investigating some technological interventions that would permit parents to partake of, of some of these interventions from home using technology such as Facebook to, um, to be able to access it, what we would call asynchronously, meaning that they can do it when it's convenient for them. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. We know that there can be a genetic predisposition to depression, so how do we counsel families about this who are worried that maybe the depression that they have may also manifest in their children, particularly as they're getting older and turning into adolescence? So children um, of depressed parents are at increased risk for having depression as well as a host of other um, mental health difficulties. It is important um, to understand that there's a genetic risk, but there's also other risks. Um, they have a shared family environment mm -hmm. in which parenting could be negatively impacted. Um, these families with depression, they have more negative life events than other families. So the kids are exposed to um, many things that could lead them to having being at risk for depression. It's important to sort of understand that and actually for the children to monitor them to see if they show early signs of depression so that we can intervene early mm -hmm. because that would be the importance um, of catching them before they develop into sort of a major depressive episode. Mm -hmm. What are some of the resources at CHOP that we could refer 
these children to? We talked a lot about where the parents could go and what we could do for parents with CVH, but what about the children? The Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, um, we have a child and adolescent move program. And so we do extensive evaluation with kids who have um, show signs of mood symptoms. Um, but any other um, providers in our clinic, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, um, also see kids with depression. And so we provide both um, psychological therapy as well as medication for these families, um, both individual-based and family-based um, parenting for children. So we have a whole host of um, services provided. And, as, and similarly, the community behavioral health system for families can also um, provide both medication and therapy for children that are exhibiting depression symptoms. And in, in addition, there's also some preventive strategies even before children show signs of depression that families can be counseled to help their child stay physically active because physical activity can help fight depression to keep involved with school, keep involved in school activities. So even the child may start to withdraw a little bit for a parent to encourage their child to keep with those activities is a positive thing. And to provide good nutrition because nutrition can really affect how a child feels and response to their emotions and can express their emotions. And probably the most important thing is to encourage parents to talk to their child about how their child's feeling, to be very open and listen to their child about their emotions and not cut off those conversations. And that's a, a positive way of monitoring it. But there are some preventive strategies as well. Great. And on that note, for the younger infant group, are there ways that we can help um, teach parents to promote attachment and bonding, especially in this uh, dyad that might be at high risk for an impaired attachment? I mean, I think one of the simple ways we do it here at CHOP in primary care is through Reach Out and Read, mm -hmm. which is a program where we give books um, starting at six months of age. And we're not just giving a book, but we're helping parents kind of learn of how to use that book interactively, mm -hmm. to listen to their child's cues, to have a conversation back and forth. And sometimes having that concrete reminder of a book is a way to help parents jump into that positive parent-child interaction. Mm -hmm. That's one strategy. Okay. We're also um, here in Policy Lab working on parenting programs, so it's really helped parents to understand how depression affects their parenting, and then to help encourage them to, to really bond with their kids and, and, and appropriately respond to their kids, much like Marcia was saying, with Reach Out and Read. Mm -hmm. yep. One of my other um, favorite strategies is talking about family meal time, and even as uh, infants, the importance of feeding kind of face-to-face -face with your infant, either holding them with a bottle or breastfeeding. Um, and I think we see that in the Healthy Weight Clinic, too, talking about uh, healthy mealtime habits, which promote bonding and communication across the lifespan, but certainly can start in infancy. It's a great idea. So thank you so much for all of you joining me today and talking about this study. It's very exciting to hear what's new and what Policy Lab is working on and what's coming out in the future. I think some of the, the creative approaches you're using with social media are really exciting. And obviously, uh, as a podcaster, I'm on board with that. So thank you so much for joining me and uh, sharing these helpful tips for our families. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.